0: This is pamphlet number two of the document titled the Europäische Wirtschaft Gemeinschaft, or in English the European Economic Community which was put together in uh, this document was put together in 1942 a group of German economists got together and did some lectures and these are it's a collection of lectures by these different economists so uh I'm on now on pamphlet number 2. This is episode 4 of the series The Europäische Wirtschaftsgemeinschaft. Uh the title of this document is Developments Towards the European Economic Community by Dr. Horst Jecht. It's J E C H T. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Professor at the Berlin School of Economics. The European Economic Community and its enlargement again is a subheading. Europe is about to gain economic unity and independence as a result of fighting this war. Obviously it's a Second World War. My task is to demonstrate the historic development which has led to the present position over the past thousand years or so, which we probably all agree is the turning point in Europe's fate. It could actually appear as if the magnitude and singularity of the decision being faced make such deliberations unnecessary. But to appreciate the special situation today, one has to understand the past, and this applies to the European Economic Community. Its concept is expressed in the creation of an enlarged economic community. Even with a retrospective look at things we need to demonstrate whether and how such an enlarged economic community has existed before in European history. I consciously use a word here which is freely used in modern literature and bears a truly undefined character in order to draw on notions familiar to us. Firstly though, I want to describe where I find the identity of such an enlarged economic area. Managing any economy requires the availability of room to form a basis. The nature and characteristics of that area, its abundance of agricultural and mineral products, and its transport situation are as influential as the effects of economic activity on the formation of economic life. We can talk about economic landscapes in regard to the close relationship between economy and room in the sense of a uniform creation of an economic life in a defined geographical area. The term enlarged economic area we understand to mean the combination of economic processes over a wide area of the world which go to create this advanced form of economic unity in figurative terms, then, the formation of economic entities in an area which differs significantly from other economic ones. Two things are necessary for the creation of such a uniform economic area. Firstly, a certain degree of economic integration within a given area. Put another way, the way in which it has governed its economic life for hundreds and thousands of years has to be overthrown and has to be left behind. Secondly, a certain unity of political order, in particular, has to bring together all economic features of this area. This does not mean in every case the subjection to the uniform, single will of the state. Such communal order is quite possible in the form of voluntary cooperation between independent nations, while recognising the political leadership of one people and state whether Europe has ever created, is creating or will ever create an economic area is only now becoming a hotly debated issue. Subheading is the problem of the European Economic Area in Late Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Let us start our consideration at the point where, for the first time in European history, a truly significant economic area in the way we understand one, was seen. This was in the time of late antiquity in the Mediterranean area. The Roman Empire of the first centuries of our chronology represents an enlarged economic area which spanned far and wide and generated a significant amount of economic traffic, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Black Sea, from North Africa to the north of the British Isles. The various parts were held together by a high degree of free trade and political unity of the Roman state. This area was self-sufficient in all of the important basic commodities and stood only loosely connected to the other areas known then, particularly the ancient civilizations of India and China, Central Africa, Northern and Eastern Europe. The intensity and extent of economic activity in the Roman Empire of the first few centuries remained constant and of such a nature that one can already mention the term European Economic Area. Not Europe, rather the region of the Mediterranean Basin, which includes important areas of the Northeast and North Africa, was brought together into the framework of the Roman Empire. Even from the 4th century AD, long before the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, this Mediterranean economic form had started to decay, as autonomy became granted to the various regions and a natural economic way of living was reverted to more and more. The historical nature of the so-called Middle Ages is seen as different as the areas of central and western europe lose their characters as peripheral zones and start to assume influence over european development politically economically and culturally this is the first time one can talk of a quote european close quote economic economic history politically the basis for the formation of a uniform economic area up to the high Middle Ages was not favourable at all. The Carolingian Empire gave powerful expression to the idea of unity in large areas of Europe as it was then, and even the entire Christian Occident. The German Empire, though restricted to an immediate region over the centre of Europe, Germany and Italy, assumed political leadership of the Occident in its heyday. But, in these centuries of uniform political European order, the preconditions for a closer economic consideration were not yet met. As recent research has revealed, important vestiges of a barter and transport economy have been preserved, particularly in the western and southern regions of Europe. However, they lacked the strength to alter significantly the mainly parochial and inconsistent character of economic life. It is not possible to talk of an intensive economic integration of large areas of Europe then, until after the Crusade movement had started and the spread of urban settlements and economic entities. At the same time, political unity in Europe started to fall apart. The whole European order that had existed crumbled with the split of Germany and Italy after the later Stauffer period and the recent internal disintegration of the empire. The following centuries see the arrival firstly from the West in this political vacuum of new and independent bodies of the developing nation system of Europe, which to the present day have formed the biggest obstacle to a European economic community. In these centuries of gradual decay of the old political order, and of the first, though faltering, beginning of the new nation system, we see in the north and south of Europe the golden age of two trade and transport systems over a wide area which in no way represent a pan-European economic order. Yet they serve our interest today as attempts at an economic area formation in particular areas of Europe. The Italian cities, first of all, drew rich benefits from the intensification of trade with the East as a result of the Crusades. It's the Christian Crusades, by the way. Repelling Islam. These cities became the supporters of the important global trade in products such as spices, silk, etc. from the Near and Far East. Venice rose to become the richest city in Europe at that time. The area around the eastern Mediterranean, hitherto ruled by Arabs and the Byzantine, sorry, the area around the eastern Mediterranean, hitherto ruled by Arabs and the Byzantine, became part of the Italian city's trade and economic area in the late Middle Ages. These cities incorporated the areas both commercially and to an extent politically into their area of rule with the help of a disparate system of trade colonies. Under German leadership in the area north of the Alps, a similarly intensive trade and transport network developed. On the one hand, it was already engaged in intensive trade with northern Italy due to the trade with the east but its real activity and lasting historical achievement reaches into the east of Europe. The areas furthest to the east were connected to the European economic culture for the first time. It was then that people settled again in areas of East Germany and which became incorporated into the system of trade governed by the cities. The German businessman then reached further beyond his borders into Poland and Russia. It is necessary in this regard to recall the special achievements of the Hanseatic cities. This alliance of northern German cities shows most impressively, most impressively, what the German entrepreneurial spirit is capable of achieving where large areas are brought together into an economic entity. The boundaries of the Hanseatic area were marked by Novo In the east, Bergen in the north, Bruges and London in the west, and its centre in the Baltic area was in Lubeck. Its economic function was to bring together those countries in East Europe bearing surpluses of raw materials and cereals and the commercial areas of Flanders, France, and Western Germany. It will be difficult to appreciate the achievements of the Hanseatic League if one only considers its raison d'etre in the commercial field as a trading monopoly. Rather, the Hanseatic businessman encouraged and organized production in those countries with which he traded. Moreover, he was the supplier and disseminator of German culture, a colonizer in the best sense of the word, and all that through the peaceful means of trading. No foreign lives were lost, as happened when the colonial policy of the Western Europeans, especially Great Britain, entailed both political and military subjugation. Excuse me for a sip of water. Subheading is Recent Changes to the Problem of the Area of Europe. The dawning of the modern age, bringing with it a multitude of far-reaching changes, led the economic life of Europe gradually but inexorably down new avenues. In relation to our problems, one can speak of almost a revolution taking place at that time in the way areas for living were regarded. This was most clearly expressed by the extension of the natural scientific world following the great voyages of discovery. Equally important are the effects of the changed idea about living area both in terms of nation and economy. There were three major changes. One, the formation of the European nations into a geographically defined area both in a political and economic sense. Two, the development of a transport system from a European one into an intercontinental one. And three, the growth of the British Isles into a predominantly sea power and the related so-called free world economy subheading the formation of the nations and independent economies now to the formation of the world of the european nations here we are talking about the internal and external sovereign power structure which had determined european history to the present day the process of change has Decisive importance for the continuation of economic development. The traditional system of a pan nation and supranation economic organization, as embodied by the Hanseatic League, can no longer be reconciled with the will for independence of the new nations. The clash with governmental power led to the loss of the most important foreign trade privileges as was the the case with the Hanseatic League. This process was most clearly seen in the suppression of German businessmen in London. In 1598, we finally see the closure of the Stahl Court, one of the most important Hanseatic bases in London. The shaping of economic life, the other side to this development, now comes from the state. Just as it put the army and civil service into service in order to achieve its political ends, so it did also with the economy. Economic life in Europe breaks down into a row of adjacent but independent economic bodies, just as happened in the political arena. This position should not be understood as complete, auto-key for this mercantile state framework. Trade between nations now starts to intensify and a hostile attitude in the economic field becomes decisive, turning into what we call the ongoing economic war, which continued at the time between the individual powers. The trade policy of the time also represents the continuation of war by other means, the decisive factor in all this is sorry, the decisive factor in all this is that an all-embracing principle of order is missing from the relationships between the economies of Europe. Subheading is overseas expansion and its consequences for Europe. At the same time as this development of adjacent governmental economic bodies, we see the second fundamental change, which is the development of intercontinental trade transport. Its foundation lies in the expansion of the European economy overseas, following the discovery of America Mm -hmm. and new sea routes. In relation to this economic and mainly political conquest of overseas territories, The term, quote, Europeanization of the world, close quote, has been coined. The equilibrium, which previously existed between the continents, seemed to be displaced by European superiority. In reality, this rarely peaceful exploitation of the world had nothing to do with the common European process, such as the Crusades, which were, in a way, an expression of a certain European solidarity that's interesting um, just a side note here um, and it's just a slip of, water, slip of water interesting how they refer to the, he refers to the crusades talking about European solidarity so it was uh, Europeans fighting defending Europe against the um, Islamic invasion which is what He's not going to say, because obviously the Germans worked, Hitler teamed up with, the, um, with Muslims. Anyway, right, that's just a side note, back to the lecture. Rather, it was all about the isolated and egotistical action of individual European powers. The fiercest, the fiercest wars were waged in order to gain possession of the colonies. One can say that all the important European wars in that century were simply the European analogy of these battles to divide up the world. One after another, the two nations of the Iberian Peninsula, then Holland, France, and finally the eventual victor, Great Britain, rose up from these wars as leading colonial powers. Both in war and peace, the individual nations watched this exploitation of the colonies, full of distrust and enmity, which were bent on gaining a trade monopoly with its colonies. The colonial powers' relations with overseas areas grew more important than their relations within Europe. This only applies, though, to the leading Atlantic powers in Western Europe. A parallel to this development is the nascent expansion of Russia towards Siberia and onto the Pacific, thereby confirming its identity as a half-Asian power. Middle Europe, on the other hand, at first had no share in this economic exploitation of the world due to political weakness, and in spite of being the natural center point of the continent in the Middle Ages, Moreover, she was dealt a hefty setback by the competition from the new overseas countries. Our linen industry is a well-known example, which used to be the most important industry export in early times and whose collapse was finally sealed by the advance of foreign cotton. The outbreak of World War I meant changes to production as well as, as consumption. In Southern Europe, those nations that had been based on rice cotton and sugar production since the Middle Ages fell victim to competition from Western India. This Italy's economic regression caused by the change in sea routes accelerated by the shift of production overseas. Sub- Right, sorry, of the production overseas. Overall, this extension of intercontinental trade, which started after the modern age, represents a process for Europe that demolishes the traditional European economic order and strengthens the development that arose from the formation of the nations of Europe. The 19th century, especially the middle part of it, only brought to an end what was... Would have started in the previous centuries. This age has been called, quote, the age of the global economy, close quote, mm-hmm. when attempting to experience again, a late heyday in the years between 1925 and 1929. During this time, economic relations between continents reached their peak European trade, especially between the developed industrial nations of Western and Central Europe, increased considerably, none more so than in the direction of the outer regions of Europe. The title used, Age of the World Economy, is justified when one considers the profound change in economic relations between Europe and overseas. On the one hand, Western and Central Europe only now attain that technical superiority that transforms it, the world's workshop. Sorry, I guess it means transforms it into the world's workshop. Sorry, let me just read that again. On the one hand, Western and Central Europe only now attain that technical superiority that transformed it, the world's workshop. I guess it into the world's workshop. On the other, at the same time, it meant that Europe became dependent on imports from overseas regions more than ever before in the past. Until the 19th century, European imports consisted of goods from the colonies, i.e. precious metals, and then as far as Eastern Asia is concerned, commercially produced luxury goods, i.e. goods that are not essential for living. Where food and raw material supply is concerned though, the European nations, at least the largest ones, were self-sufficient until the start of the 19th century. For the nations in Western and Central Europe, imports of food and raw materials start to grow from this point, upon which a strong dependence on imports from overseas develops. This development ends up with production of food and raw materials in the agricultural regions of Eastern and Central Europe falling to a very low level. All those reserves and opportunities available to Europe go almost totally unused. This is a further sign of the continued decline of the European Economic Community. Subtitle, subheading, sorry, The Release of England from the Continent and the Formation of the, quote, Free Global Economy Excuse me. This recent transformation only becomes complete with the third change, which I earlier described as fundamental, and that is the special development undergone by the British Isles at time. That's, again, bad English. Until then, they had not become the predominantly maritime power that they are today, despite their insular position one whose land extends far into overseas territories. The big difference between the British Isles and the nations of continental Europe, even those with large overseas colonies, only becomes apparent now. Despite the latter's increasingly important economies outside Europe, they never lost their identity as European land powers. As if proof for this was needed, it can be seen in 1940, when Marshal Pétain refused to relocate the French government to a place outside Europe. We can recall, in contrast to this, various deliberations on the part of the English concerning a shift of the core of the British Empire to an overseas location. The foundation for this remarkable development of England was laid back in the period between the 16th and 18th centuries, where maritime superiority was gained and a global colonial empire acquired. By the end of this period, countries outside European accounted for 40% of England's export trade. This development continued until World War I. In 1913. These countries accounted for 56% and 65% of England's imports and exports, respectively. Foreign capital investment levels in these countries also started to grow significantly. I'm going to bring this uh, episode to a close. That was episode four, and I will continue reading uh, this lecture in the next episode to follow shortly. Thank you for joining me. Face, Amy. Out.